Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, invites you to be the informed patient with the podcast that features experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. The human papillomavirus, or HPV, is the most frequent sexually transmitted infection in the United States. Some types of this virus cause genital warts. Other types cause head and neck or throat cancers and genitourinary cancers, including cervical cancer. My guest today is gynecologic oncologist Allison Roy, who's an assistant professor at Upstate. Welcome back to The Informed Patient, Dr. Roy. Thank you. It's great to be here again. I know that the HPV vaccine protects against genitourinary cancers, and from what I understand, the vaccine is recommended for 9- to 12-year-old boys and girls, but it's a relatively new vaccine, so I imagine there are a lot of adults who were not vaccinated when they were children. Among the patients that you see with cervical cancer, are they mostly women who were not vaccinated as children? Yes, I would say the vast majority of my patients with cervical cancer are patients that weren't vaccinated. Additionally, they may also not be up to date with regular screening. So do you recommend your adult patients get the HPV vaccine if they did not get it when they were younger? As you mentioned before, the HPV vaccine is recommended for everyone. Um, it is 9 through 26, although it's recommended between 9 and 12. Um, and the reason for that is because you want to get the vaccine prior to any kind of sexual exposure where you may be at risk for HPV. The decision to vaccinate beyond age 26 really depends on risk factors, and it's an individualized decision between the patient and their physician. So someone say between 27 and 45, how would you go about assessing their risk factors? What should they consider? Most patients between 27 and 45 will have been exposed to HPV at some point. And it's important to understand that the vaccine itself doesn't cure HPV or treat HPV that one already has. However, the HPV vaccine does cover multiple different strains or types of HPV virus, and you may not have been exposed to all of those types. Therefore, there's still some benefit from getting the vaccine at an older age. And so when I talk to patients about getting it as an adult, I think about who's at risk for more HPV transmission. So patients who have multiple sexual partners or maybe have new sexual partners. Um, or if they work in a profession like gynecology or dermatology, where they may be occupationally exposed to HPV actually through treatment procedures. Another important factor that is a consideration is cost. And so, unfortunately, although the vaccine is FDA approved from 27 to 45, a lot of insurance companies don't yet cover it. And so that can also be a factor in terms of patients getting the vaccine. I didn't realize that. So it could be um, expensive to pay out of pocket. Yeah, it can be expensive to pay out of pocket for the vaccine. And insurance companies are starting to come around and cover it, but it's not quite there yet. So what about people who are over age 45? Are they not considered to be at high risk for cervical cancer or throat cancer? So risk for HPV-related uh, cancers doesn't just like suddenly disappear after age 45, but when you're considering the vaccine benefit, it starts to decrease a little bit in that age group. Again, because of prior HPV exposures or patients that are potentially in more monogamous or committed relationships where they don't necessarily have multiple sexual partners or, or new partners, although we do know that people in those age groups still do. But it's just in terms of kind of risk benefit right now, the vaccine isn't approved for that age group. It may be in the future. 
So someone, say a woman in her 20s or 30s, if she has developed genital warts or cervical cancer for that matter, is it too late for her to be vaccinated? It's not too late for her to be vaccinated. And as I kind of previously alluded to, while the vaccine doesn't treat or cure HPV that one has already been exposed to, it does cover multiple different types of HPV. And so the vaccine could still help protect them against the types that they haven't been exposed to. If you have a patient who has developed genital warts, is she at greater risk for developing cervical cancer? Not necessarily, although risk of exposure to one type of HPV probably means that they're engaging in behaviors that are a little bit higher risk for exposure to other types of HPV. But in general, the um, HPV strains that cause genital warts don't typically cause cancer. They're more of a low-grade strain. But again, because you have that potential for exposure, you know, your risk is a little bit higher based just off of that. This is Upstate's The Informed Patient Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with gynecologic oncologist, Dr. Allison Roy. She's an assistant professor at Upstate, and we're discussing cervical cancer, which can be largely prevented by the HPV vaccine. Aside from the HPV vaccine, what else is done to protect women from cervical cancer? An important part of cervical cancer is actually that we do have screening for it. And so routine pap smears are also performed in addition to like HPV vaccination to help prevent against cervical cancer. Can you walk me through what happens if a woman's pap smear or pap test um, or the cervical exam is abnormal? Yeah, so um, pap tests are a screening tool. And so typically if a pap test comes back abnormal, you're going to do a more specific test. And usually this is something called a colposcopy, um, which may or may not, depending on what's found, include biopsies of the cervix. Um, and a colposcopy is similar to a pap in that it's an exam where you're up in stirrups and you have a speculum and you actually are looking at the cervix with a microscope as opposed to just with the naked eye to help identify abnormal cells. Are you able to visualize the cancer cells that way with the naked eye? So, Depends. Sometimes, depending on the lesion, you can see something that looks abnormal. If it's very small and microscopic, the microscope can actually help us to see that a little bit better. We also use something called acetic acid, which is actually just a solution that you can put on top of the cervix that helps turn some of those abnormal cells a whitish color to allow us to see it better. Now, I've heard the term cervical dysplasia. Is that related to cervical cancer? So cervical dysplasia is a general term for pre-cancer of the cervix. So these are abnormal cells, but they're not yet cancer. And there's three different grades of dysplasia depending on how abnormal those cells look. Now you mentioned the colposcopy. Is that like a biopsy or is it a type of biopsy technically? The colposcopy part of it is just the act of using that acetic acid solution and looking at the cervix with the microscope. Most often when you have a colposcopy, if there's abnormal areas that are seen, biopsies will also be done. I see. And then once you get the results of those biopsies back, is that how you diagnose whether she has cervical cancer? Yeah, so cervical cancer is a diagnosis based off of the tissue, so based off of the biopsy sample that we get. What are a woman's options if she's diagnosed with cervical cancer? So it really depends on the stage um, at diagnosis. So the stage of diagnosis is based on physical exam as well as typically imaging that's done. 
to kind of get a sense of the cancer spread anywhere else beyond the cervix. And so it's a combination of looking physically at the cervix and doing a physical exam along with imaging to help decide what the treatment recommendation is going to be. Is surgery an option or radiation, chemotherapy, are they all options? So again, depending on the stage, surgery is an option in earlier stage cervical cancers. As we get into later stages, we actually move more towards treatment with a combination of radiation and chemotherapy um, and not actually treating it with surgery at all. What are the survival rates like for cervical cancer? Early stage cervical cancer or cancers that are confined to the cervix have a good overall survival rate. Statistics from um, the American Cancer Society give about a 90% survival at five years and a lot of cancers reported based on five-year survival, which is the amount of patients with that diagnosis that are still alive at five years from their diagnosis. So greater than 90% is great for early cervical cancer. Unfortunately, once that disease starts to spread regionally, meaning kind of within the pelvic area, that survival decreases to around 66%. And then when you start to have diagnosis of distant disease, either a disease that spread to the abdomen, the chest, or actually locally invading like into the bladder or into the rectum, that drops down to about 15 to 20%. Do you know if the HPV vaccine has been in use long enough to have an impact um, and reduce the incidence of cervical cancer? Are we seeing less of it now? Yes, there's actually been several studies that have shown a dramatic decrease in cervical cancer in young patients who have been vaccinated. There was a study that looked actually at a huge population, 1.7 million women, that showed almost a 90% reduction in patients' cervical cancer frequency in those who were vaccinated before age 17. So these are huge decreases in numbers based off of the vaccine. Does a woman who develops cervical cancer need to be concerned about throat cancer or other HPV-related cancers as well as the cervical cancer? Yeah, so cervical cancer and other HPV-related cancers are all kind of linked to that exposure risk to HPV. And so, unfortunately, someone who has a diagnosis of cervical cancer or even someone who has a diagnosis of HPV is potentially at risk for HPV in other sites. Unfortunately, there's no standard screening for other HPV-related cancers the way there is for cervical cancer with the pap smears. And I also have to add here, just with HPV-related cancers, smoking is another major modifiable risk factor that is increased in all HPV-related cancers. At the beginning, I said genitourinary cancers, and we've talked mostly about cervical cancer. Do you see many cases of vaginal or vulvar or anal cancers in women that are tied to HPV? Vaginal and vulvar cancers are a little bit less common, but they you know, certainly do see those in my patients, and most of them are tied to the HPV um, virus. And so a lot of vaginal vulvar cancers, I don't see as many in terms of anal cancers, mostly because those end up going to my colorectal colleagues. So the vaginal or vulvar would not be diagnosed with a cervical test or, or a pap smear. How would those cancers be discovered? So typically they're either based on a patient developing some sort of symptoms that comes to present. So things like itching, burning, maybe a bump that they feel, um, you know, just general kind of irritation in the vaginal or vulvar area. 
or they might be discovered just on a routine annual GYN exam. You know, as providers, we're always looking at the external as well as the internal parts of the you know, vulva, vagina, cervix, everything to look for any abnormal areas. So a woman who's listening to this interview, if she doesn't remember getting the HPV vaccine in, in childhood, um, should she talk with her gynecologist? Is Any gynecologist can help give a vaccination for HPV? Absolutely, yeah. Any OBGYN physician is able to talk about risk factors for the HPV vaccine and whether you should get it or not, depending on kind of your individualized circumstances. Well, thank you so much for making time for this interview, Dr. Roy. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. My guest has been Dr. Allison Roy, a gynecologic oncologist at Upstate Medical University. The Informed Patient is a podcast covering health, science, and medicine brought to you by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Find our archive of previous episodes at upstate.edu informed. I'm your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.